Chapter 12 of Masters of Space. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by R.J. Davis. Masters of Space by Edward Elmer Smith, a.k.a. E.E. Doc Smith, and Edward Everett Evans. Translated by Robert Sicconetti. Stephen Blundell, and the online distributed proofreading team. Chapter 12 As has been said, the Strets were working with all the intensity of their monstrous but tremendously capable minds upon their great plan, which was basically to conquer and either enslave or destroy every other intelligent race throughout all the length, breadth, and thickness of total space. To that end, each individual threat had to become invulnerable and immortal. Wherefore, in the inconceivably remote past, there had been put into effect a program of selective breeding and a carefully calculated treatment. It was mathematically certain that this program would result in a race of beings of pure force, beings having no material constituents remaining whatever. Under those hellish treatments, billions upon billions of threats had died, but the few remaining thousands had almost reached their sublime goal. In a few more hundreds of thousands of years, perfection would be reached. The few surviving hundreds of perfect beings could and would multiply to any desired number in practically no time at all. Hilton and his seven fellow workers had perceived all this in their one and only study of the planet Strat, and every other Arden had been completely informed. A dozen or so Strat lords of thought, male and female, were floating about in the atmosphere, which was not air, of their assembly hall. Their heads were globes of ball lightning. Inside them could be seen quite plainly the intricate convolutions of immense, less than half material brains, shot through and through with rods and pencils and shapes of pure, circulating force. And the bodies, or rather each horrendous brain, had a few partially material appendages and apertensions recognizable as bodily organs. There were no mouths, no ears, no eyes, no noses or nostrils, no lungs, no legs or arms. There were, however, hearts. Some partially material ichor flowed through those living fire-outlined tubes. There were starkly functional organs of reproduction, with which, by no stretch of the imagination, could any thought of tenderness or of love be connected. It was a good thing for the race. Hilton had thought at first perception of the things that the stretch had bred out of themselves, every iota of the finer, higher attributes of life. If they had not done so, the impotence of sheer disgust would have supervened so long since that the race would have been extinct for ages. Thirty-eight periods ago, the great brain was charged with the sum total of steady and knowledge. First Lord Thinker Zoyar radiated to the assembled stress. For those thirty-eight periods it has been scanning, pale and diring, amassing data, and formulating hypotheses, theories, and conclusions. 
it has just informed me that it is now ready to make a preliminary report. Great Brain, how much of the total universe have you studied? This galaxy only. The brain radiated in a texture of thought as hard and as harsh as Zoyar's own. Why not more? Insufficient power. My first conclusion is that whoever set up the specifications for me is a fool. To say that the First Lord went out of control at this statement is to put it very mildly indeed. He fulminated, ending with, Destroyed instantly. Destroy me if you like, came the utterly calm, utterly cold reply. I am in no sense alive. I have no consciousness of self, nor any desire for continued existence. To do so, however, would... A flurry of activity interrupted the thought. Zoyar was, in fact, assembling the forces to destroy the brain. But before he could act, Second Lord Thinker Yinos and another female blew him into a mixture of loose molecules and flaring energy. Destruction of any and all irrational minds is mandatory, Yinos, now First Lord Thinker, explained to the linked minds. Zoyar had been becoming less and less rational by the period. A good workman does not causelessly destroy his tools. Go ahead, great brain, with your findings. Not me logical. The brain resumed the thought exactly where it had been broken off. Joyar erred in demanding unlimited performance, since infinite knowledge and infinite ability require not only infinite capacity and infinite power, but also infinite time. Nor is it either necessary or desirable that I should have such qualities. There is no reasonable basis for the assumption that you stress will conquer any significant number, even of the millions of intelligent races now inhabiting this one galaxy. Why not? Yinos demanded, her thought almost but not quite as steady and cold as it had been. The answer to that question is implicit in the second indefensible error made in my construction. The prime data expressed into my bank that the Stretch are in fact the strongest, ablest, most intelligent race in the universe proved to be false. I had to eliminate it before I could do any really constructive thinking. A roar of condemnatory thought brought all of circumambient ether to a boil. My destroyer, detestable, intolerable. If that is the best it can do, annihilate it. Far better brains have been destroyed for much less. Treason, and so on. The first Lord Thinker Yinos, however, remained relatively calm. While we have always held it to be a fact that we are the highest race in existence, no rigorous proof has been possible. Can you now disprove that assumption? I have disproved it. I have not had time to study all of the civilizations of this galaxy, but I have examined a statistically adequate sample of 1,792,416 different planetary intelligences. I found one which is considerably abler and more advanced than you steps. 
Therefore, the probability is greater than 0.99 that there are not less than 10 and not more than 208 such races in this galaxy alone. Impossible! Another wave of incredulous and threatening anger swept through the linked mind, a wave which Yinos flattened out with some difficulty. Then she asked, Is it probable that we will make contact with this supposedly superior race in the foreseeable future? You are in contact with it now. What? Even Yinos was contemptuous now. You mean that one shipload of despicable humans who, far too late to do them any good, barred us temporarily from fuel worlds? Not exactly, or only those humans know, and your assumptions may or may not be valid. Don't you know whether they are not? Yano snapped. Explain your uncertainty at once. I am uncertain because of insufficient data. The brain replied calmly. The only pertinent facts of which I am certain are, first, the world Ardray upon which the Omens formerly lived and to which the humans in question first went, a planet which no strat can parry on there, is now abandoned. Second, the strats of old did not completely destroy the humanity of the world Ardu. Third, some escapees from Ardu reached and populated the world Ardre. Fourth, the android omens were developed on Ardre by the human escapees from Ardu and their descendants. Fifth, the omens referred to these humans as masters. Sixth, after living on Ardre for a very long period of time, the masters went elsewhere. Seventh, the omens remained on Audre, maintained continuously and for a very long time the status quo left by the masters. Eighth, immediately upon the arrival from Terra of these present humans, that long existing status was broken. Ninth, the planet called Fuel World is, for the first time, surrounded by a screen of force. The formula of this screen is as follows. The brain gave it. No strat either complained or interrupted. Each was too busy studying that formula and examining its stunning implications and connotations. Tenth, that formula is one full order of magnitude beyond anything previously known to your science. Eleventh, it could not have been developed by the science of Terra nor by that of any other world whose population I have examined. The brain took the linked minds instantaneously to Terra, then to a few thousand or so other worlds inhabited by human beings, then to a few thousands of planets whose populations were near-human, non-human, and monstrous. It is therefore clear, it announced, that this screen was computed and produced by the race, whatever it may be that is now dwelling on Fuel World and asserting full ownership of it. Who or what is that race? Yinos demanded. Data insufficient. Theorize them. Postulate that the Masters, in many thousands of cycles of study, made advances in science that were not reduced to practice, 
that the Omans either possessed this knowledge or had access to it, and that Omans and humans cooperated fully in sharing and in working with all the knowledges thus available. From these three postulates, the conclusion can be drawn that there has come into existence a new race, one combining the best qualities of both humans and omens, but with the weaknesses of neither. An unpleasant thought, truly, Yinos thought. But you can now, I suppose, design the generators and projectors of a force superior to that screen. Data insufficient. I can equal it since both generation and projection are implicit in the formula. But the data so adduced are in themselves vastly ahead of anything previously in my banks. Are there any other races in this galaxy more powerful than the postulated one now living on few worlds? Data insufficient. Theorize it. Data insufficient. The link minds concentrated upon the problem for a period of time that might have been either days or weeks. Then, Great Brain, advise us, Yino said. What is best for us to do? With identical defensive screens, it becomes a question of relative power. You should increase the size and power of your warships to something beyond the computed probable maximum of the enemy. You should build more ships and missiles than they will probably be able to build. Then, and only then, will you attack their warships in tremendous force and continuously. But not their planetary defenses, I see. Gino's thought was one of complete understanding. And the real offensive will be? No mobile structure can be built to mount mechanisms of power sufficient to smash down by sheer force of output such tremendously powerful installations as their planet-based defenses must be assumed to be. Therefore, the planet itself must be destroyed. This will require a missile of planetary mass. The best such missile is the tenth planet of their own sun. I see. Yano's mind was leaping ahead, considering hundreds of possibilities and making highly intricate and involved computations. That will, however, require many cycles of time and more power than even our immense reserves can supply. True, it will take much time. The fuel problem, however, is not a serious one, since fuel world is not unique. Think on, First Lord Yinos. We will attack in maximum force and with maximum violence. We will blanket the planet. We will maintain maximum force and violence until most or all of the enemy ships have been destroyed. We will then install planetary drives on 10 and force it into collision orbit with fuel work. Meanwhile, exerting extreme precautions that not so much as a spy beam emerges above the enemy's screen. Then, still maintaining extreme precaution, we will guard both planets until the last possible moment before the collision. Brain, it cannot fail. You error, it can fail. All we actually know of the abilities of this postulated neo-human race is what I have learned from the composition of its defensive screen. 
the probability approaches unity that the masters continue to delve and to learn for millions of cycles while you stretch, reasonlessly certain of your supremacy, concentrated upon your evolution from the material to a non-material form of life, and performed only limited research into armaments of greater and ever greater power. True, but that attitude was then justified. It was not and is not logical to assume that any race would establish a fixed status at any level of ability below its absolute maximum. While that conclusion could once have been defensible, it is now virtually certain that the Masters had stores of knowledge which they may or may not have withheld from the Omens, but which were in some way made available to the Neo-Humans. Also, there is no basis whatever for the assumption that this new race has revealed all its potentiality. Statistically, that is probably true. But this is the best plan you have been able to formulate? It is. Of the many thousands of plans I set up and tested, this one has the highest probability of success. Then we will adopt it. We are stressed. Whatever we decide upon will be driven through to complete success. We have one tremendous advantage in you. Yes, the probability approaches unity that I can perform research on a vastly wider and larger scale, and almost infinitely faster than can any living organism or any possible combination of such organisms. Nor was the great brain bragging. It scanned in moments the stored scientific knowledge of over a million planets. It tabulated, correlated, analyzed, synthesized, theorized, and concluded, all in microseconds of time. Thus, it made more progress in one Terran week than the Masters had made in a million years. When it had gone as far as it could go, it reported its results. And the Strats, hard as they were and intransigent, were amazed and overjoyed. Not one of them had ever even imagined such armaments possible. Hence, they became supremely confident that it was unmatched and unmatchable throughout all space. What the great brain did not know, however, and the stretch did not realize, was that it could not really think. Unlike the human mind, it could not deduce valid theories or conclusions from incomplete, insufficient, fragmentary data. It could not leap gaps. Thus, there was no more actual assurance than before that they had exceeded, or even matched, the weaponry of the neo-humans of Fuel World. Supremely confident, Wino said, We will now discuss every detail of the plan in sub-detail, and will correlate every sub-detail with every other, to the end that every action, however minor, will be performed perfectly and in its exact time. That discussion, which lasted for days, was held. Hundreds of thousands of new and highly specialized mechs were built and went furiously and continuously to work. A fuel supply line was run to another uranexite-rich planet. Stripping machines stripped away the surface layers of soil, sand, rock, and low-grade ore. Giant miners tore and dug and sliced and refined and concentrated. Storage silos by the hundreds were built and were filled 
Hundreds upon hundreds of concentrate carriers bored their stolid ways through hyperspace. Many weeks of time passed. But of what importance are mere weeks of time to a race that has, for many millions of years, been adhering rigidly to a preset program? The sheer magnitude of the operation and the extraordinary attention to detail with which it was prepared and launched explain why the Strat attack on Ardvor did not occur until so many weeks later than Hilton and Sawtell expected it. They also explained the utterly incomprehensible fury, the completely fantastic intensity, the unparalleled savagery, the almost immeasurable brute power of that attack when it finally did come. When the Orion landed on Ardane Field from Earth, carrying the first contingent of immigrants, Hilton and Sawtell were almost as much surprised as relieved that the Strets had not already attacked. Sawtail, confident that his defenses were fully ready, took it more or less in stride. Hilton worried. And after a couple of days, he began to do some real thinking about it. The first result of his thinking was a conference with Temple. As soon as she got the drift, she called in Teddy and Big Bill Carnes. Teddy, in turn, called in Becky and Devon. Carnes wanted Pointner and Beverly. Pointer wasn't Braden and the twins, and so on. Thus, what started out as a conference of two became a full Arden staff meeting, a meeting which, starting immediately after lunch, ran straight through into the following afternoon. To sum up the consensus for the record, Hilton said then, studying a sheet of paper covered with symbols, the Strats haven't attacked yet because they found out that we are stronger than they are. They found that out by analyzing our defensive web, which, if we had had this meeting first, we wouldn't have put up at all. Unlike anything known to human or previous threat science, it is proof against any form of attack up to the limit of the power of its generators. They will attack as soon as they are equipped to break that screen at the level of power probable to our ships. We cannot arrive at any reliable estimate as to how long that will take. As to the effectiveness of our cutting off their known fuel supply, opinion is divided. We must therefore assume that fuel shortage will not be a factor. Neither are we unanimous on the basic matter as to why the Masters acted as they did just before they left Audrey. Why did they set the status so far below their top abilities? Why did they make it impossible for the Omans ever, of themselves, to learn their higher science? Why, if they did not want that science to become known, did they leave complete records of it? The majority of us believe that the Masters coded their records in such fashion that the Strats, even if they conquered the Omans or destroyed them, could never break that code since it was key to the basic difference between the Strat mentality and the human. Thus, they left it deliberately for some human race to find. Finally, and most important, our physicists and theoreticians are not able to extrapolate from the analysis of our screen to the concepts underlying the Master's ultimate weapons of offense, the first-stage booster and its final end product, the bang, 
if, as we can safely assume, the Shrets do not already have these weapons, they will know nothing about them until we ourselves use them in battle. These are, of course, only the principal points covered. Does anyone wish to amend this summation as recorded? No one did. The meeting was adjourned. Hilton, however, accompanied Sawtell and Ketty to the captain's office. So you see, Skipper, we got trouble, he said. If we don't use those boosters against their skeletons, it'll boil down to a stalemate lasting God only knows how long. It will be a war of attrition, outcome dependent on which side can build the most and biggest and strongest ships the fastest. On the other hand, if we do use them on defense here, they'll analyze them and have everything worked out in a day or so. The first thing they'll do is beef up their planetary defenses to match. That way, we'd blow all their ships out of space, probably easily enough. But Strat itself will be just as safe as though it were in God's left-hand hip pocket. So what's the answer? It isn't that simple, Jarv. Sawtell said. I'll hear from you, Caddy. Thank you, sir. There is an optimum mass, a point of maximum efficiency of firepower as balanced against loss of maneuverability for any craft designed for attack, Caddy thought in his most professional manner. We assume that the Strats know that as well as we do. No such limitation applies to strictly defensive structures, but both the Strat craft and ours must be designed for attack. We have built and are building many hundreds of thousands of ships of that type, so undoubtedly are the Strats. Ship for ship, they will be pretty well matched. Therefore, one part of my strategy will be for two of our ships to engage simultaneously one of theirs. There is a distinct probability that we will have enough advantage in speed of control to make that tactic operable. But there's another that we won't, Sawtell objected, and maybe they can build more ships than we can. Another point is that they may build, in addition to their big stuff, a lot of small ultra-fast ones, Hilton put in. Suicide jobs, crash and detonate, simply super-missiles. How sure are you that you can stop such missiles with ordinary beams? Not at all, sir. Some of them would, of course, reach and destroy some of our ships, which brings up the second part of my strategy. For each one of the heavies, we are building many small ships of the type you just called super missiles. Super dreadnoughts versus super dreadnoughts. Super missiles versus super missiles. Hilton digested that concept for several minutes. That could still wind up as a stalemate, except for what you said about control. That isn't much to depend on, especially since we won't have the time lag advantage you Omens had before. They'll see to that. Also, I don't like to sacrifice a million Omens either. I haven't explained the newest development yet, sir. There will be no omens. Each ship and each missile has a built-in caddy brain, sir. What? That makes it infinitely worse. 
You caddies, unless it's absolutely necessary, are not expendable. Oh, but we are, sir. You don't quite understand. We caddies are not merely similar, but are in fact identical. Thus, we are not independent entities. All of us together make up the actual caddy. That which is meant when we say I. That is, I am the sum total of all caddies everywhere, not merely this individual that you call Caddy One. You mean you're all talking to me? Exactly, sir. Thus, no one element of the caddy has any need of or any desire for self-preservation. The destruction of one element or of thousands of elements would be of no more consequence to the caddy than, well, they are strictly analogous to the severed ends of the hairs every time you get a haircut. My God! Hilton stared at Sawtelle. Sawtelle stared back. I'm beginning to see. Maybe. I hope. What control that would be. But just in case we should have to use the boosters. Hilton's voice died away. Scowling in concentration, he clasped his hands behind his back and began to pace the floor. Better give up, Jarve. Caddy's got the same mind you have. Sawtelle began to Hilton's oblivious back. But Kitty silenced the thought almost in the moment of its inception. By no means, sir, he contradicted. I have the brain only. The mind is entirely different. Link up, Kitty, and see what you think of this, Hilton broke in. There ensued an interchange of thought so fast and so deeply mathematical that Sawtelle was lost in seconds. Do you think it'll work? I don't see how it can fail, sir. At what point in the action should it be put into effect? And will you call the time of initiation, or shall I? Not until all their reserves are in action, or at worst, all of ours except that one task force. Since you'll know a lot more about the status of the battle than either Sawtell or I will, you give the signal and I'll start things going. What are you two talking about? Sawtelle demanded. It's a long story, chum. Caddy can tell you about it better than I can. Besides, it's getting late, and Dark Lady and Larry both give me hell every time I hold supper on plus time, unless there's a mighty good reason for it. So, so long, guys. End of chapter 12